as a, um, as a reminder, as a reminder, we're in the midst of a series of messages that are designed to address the question, what does the future hold? Now, I realize that uh, such a question could lead to some very subjective areas for us as individuals to consider. Some of us are thinking, what does the future hold? Because we're not certain of maybe our employment situation, our job status, whether we're going to get a raise, whether there's going to be a layoff, there's going to be a cutback, there's going to be an acquisition of some sort. We're not sure whether we're going to get the contract that we're bidding. We're not sure whether or not we should buy, we should sell, we should hold what the market's going to do. Some of us are thinking in terms of relationships. We're not sure where our relationship is heading. For those who are married, we're struggling with some of the things that are going on in that particular area. For those who are dating, we're wondering how this is going to all turn out. For those who are struggling with health issues, we wonder about the future, what the test results are going to be, how the surgery is going to turn out, whether or not it's benign or whether it's malignant, and all the questions that go with that. So as we consider the question, what does the future hold, I realize that it can be very subjective at times, and I feel it's necessary to explain this question in the context in which we will address it in the series, and that is this. When we ask the question, what does the future hold, we are referring specifically to God's overall plan for mankind. In other words, what we're going to do is focus on the big picture that is encompassing all of mankind and all the individual ramifications because certainly God's big picture does affect us on an individual level. So as we look at what's ahead or what lies ahead in the future, I want us to consider not only what God has to say as far as His plan for all of mankind, but we also need to ask of ourselves, what does this have to do with me specifically as an individual? So far in our series, we've examined what the Bible tells us about the return of Jesus Christ. Also, the religious apostasy of the last days, specifically that referring to a departure from the Christian faith that will occur at an accelerated rate prior to the return of Jesus Christ. We also saw in one of our sessions, uh, we talked at great length as what God has to say about the Great Tribulation, a time of God's global judgment that will occur in the punishment of unbelievers and also the purification or purging of the nation of Israel. And as we consider this great event that's coming, this seven-year period of time, this great tribulation that will be a global time of punishment, we ask the question of whether or not the church would go through such judgment that's brought on by God. And that reminds me, by the way, um, that was our last session that we looked at whether the church would go through the tribulation. And uh, it reminds me of two stories that were sent to me by one of you following that session. Story number one goes something like this. There was an eight-year-old boy who had never spoken a word in his lifetime ever. One afternoon, as he was sitting eating his lunch, he turned to his mother and out of what seemed like nowhere to her said, This soup is cold. His mother was astonished and said, Son, I've waited so long to hear you speak, but in all these years, eight years, you've never said a thing. Why haven't you spoken before now? The boy looked at her in kind of amazement and said, Well, until now, everything's been okay. You know, and, I was, and as I thought about that story, it's from one of you that has been coming silently for a number of years, but apparently you thought it was time to speak up because uh, I may have been going a little too fast and trying to cover all the material in our last session. Now, I'm assuming that was the case because this is the story that you sent to accompany that one. The story goes, the other day we had a bomb scare here in Rio Rancho, New Mexico at a giant gas station. Of course, the bomb squad had to be called out to investigate, which in turn brought the news crews. In the local paper the next day, there was a picture of a bomb squad member wearing a t-shirt that read, I am a bomb technician. If you see me running, try to keep up. <laughs> so thank you very much for the help. And uh, I will try to keep that in consideration as we address the following question. Of course, I will make you no promises. And the question for this particular session is this, who is the Antichrist? Now, there are many jokes and many stories that we hear regarding the term Antichrist. We hear of people that are um, linked to being the Antichrist. Is he the Antichrist? He acts like the Antichrist. We hear of things that have to do with the number 666 and all that goes along with that and taking the mark of the beast. And so, as we consider all of these different things, it's important that we recognize that the term Antichrist is definitely a biblical term. It has to do with a man who comes in the future, 
God has much to say about this person. And so we're going to ask the question, who is the Antichrist and what will he be like? And what is it that God wants us to know about this person who is yet to appear at some point in our future? Now, in order to best answer the question, it's like uh, being a police artist. Uh, We must accumulate the pieces of evidence that God lays out for us throughout the Word of God and present it in a way so that we can paint or sketch a portrait of this coming world leader. In 1 John chapter 2, we read that the Antichrist is coming and that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Now, John wrote that, 1 John uh, 4, verse 3, and that was written about 90 A.D. So we learn that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world at that particular time, which was 1,900 years ago almost. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus makes this reference concerning this person. He says, I have come in my Father's name. And anytime you hear the word coming in someone's name, it carries the idea of coming in authority. Uh, When Moses was sent to Pharaoh, he asked God, Who shall I say sent me as I go and ask Pharaoh to let your people go? And if you recall, God said to send him that he was being sent in the authority of God. He said to tell him, I am sent you. And what that means is that we are sent by authority or in the name of someone. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we're told to go in the name of Jesus Christ, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that all authority has been given to Him. So as we go out into the world and we tell people of God's tremendous love for people, and yet at the same time warn them of the impending judgment that comes as a result of sin nature and being separated from God, we go in the authority of Jesus Christ who says to go into all the world and let people know that not only does God love them, but if they reject him, they are judged by God and are condemned for all of eternity. So when someone says, who do you think that you are saying such things to me? The bottom line is this, it's not me. I don't think that I'm anybody, but I'm a representative of God who says that we have the authority in his name to go into all the world and let everyone who comes into our path hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, I have come in my father's name or the authority of God says, and you do not receive me. He says, if another comes in his own name and by his own authority, he says, him you will receive. And as we consider what's in store in the future, we ask the following question. Who is this man called Antichrist and what will he be like? We're going to examine maybe a biblical portrait that we'll look at. And there's basically seven things that we're going to touch base and and try to, to paint a composite of who this person is and what God tells us as far as this biblical portrait of this coming world leader. So as we consider the future events and we consider what lies in store for for mankind, we look at a biblical portrait of a coming world leader and we see these seven descriptions that are given of him by God. We we learn, first of all, that he is the Antichrist. Now, we learn that from 1 John references in verses uh, uh, 18 of chapter 2, verses 22, chapter 4, verse 3. If you're jotting them down, you can look them up. And uh, 2 John chapter, uh, 2 John verse 7. It's important that we understand that John paints a picture for us of a man who is known and will be called the Antichrist. It's important that we understand the Greek prefix anti has a dual meaning. Uh, one side, it means to be a substitute or a counterfeit. It means that Antichrist will come as a substitute or a counterfeit for the plan that God has for man and that there is salvation by no other name other than Jesus Christ. There is only one way to get to heaven, and Jesus said in himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to get to the Father but through me. There is no other plan that is ordained by God from the authority of God himself for man to be made right with God other than through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We need to recognize that's important to understand because the world that we live in today considers that very narrow-minded. Who do Christians think they are to say the only way you'll get to heaven is by believing in Jesus Christ? Well, we are here representing what God has to say, and it's in His authority, by His Word, that God says that. It's not our own idea because we have believed that or put our faith and trust in Christ, and therefore, no, we we don't have any tolerance for any other belief system. The bottom line is this. There is one system, there is one way, and only one way, and it's by God's authority that we share that with whomever will listen to what we have to say. God is not open to all different types of ideas and plans and strategies. 
And I know that's not politically correct in our world because everyone wants to feel like they can believe whatever they want and as long as they're sincere and as long as they don't hurt other people or as long as they're good in their own eyes that somehow or another they'll be right and that's what God's going to use to grade them or judge them to get them into heaven. And for you, I say very clearly, you are mistaken, you are wrong because God's plan is very specific. Jesus said it best when he said that enter by the narrow gate for the road to destruction is broad, very wide and many there are that enter into it. But Jesus is the narrow way, the only way, the plan of God. And there is no other hope for man other than Jesus Christ. Well, Antichrist will come along and he will be a counterfeit or a substitute for the plan of God. He will say, hey, you know what? There are other ways and you can trust in me and you can believe in me and you can follow me and it's going to be okay. He's a counterfeit, a substitute. Revelation 6.2 says that he comes and he tries to imitate Jesus Christ. We need to realize that not only is he a counterfeit and he will deny in opposition to God, he denies Jesus is the Messiah. He denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He denies that Jesus Christ will return one day to judge the living and the dead. He denies everything that the Bible says about Jesus Christ. So not only will he counterfeit or imitate being the Savior, he will be in opposition to what God has to say as far as the truth of the Word of God. And the Word of God is very clear. Antichrist is an imitator of Christ. And he is also an opposer to the things of God. And we need to recognize him for who he is. We'll talk more about that as we go through and look at this description. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll look at another description that God feels necessary for us in order to understand this person who is coming in the future who is called the Antichrist. We recognize from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2... Verses 3 and 4, there's another description that he's given, and he's called the lawless one, a man of lawlessness. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 3, we read this. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it... Now, we're referring to the day of the Lord, verses 1 and 2. They were shaken because they had gotten a report because of the persecution that they were going through that somehow or another they must have been in, the, in this period of time that we learned was the, is the Great Tribulation. They thought because of the persecution that they were going through that, hey, you know what? This must be the day of the Lord, this great time of tribulation that God promised would come at one date in the future. And Paul writes to them and says, hey, don't get shook up because of the circumstances that you are going through because this is not the great day of the Lord. It's not the day of Jacob's wrath or woes. It is not the time of the tribulation. It is a period of persecution granted in your life, but it's not the great tribulation of the end time. And he said this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, speaking of what? The day of tribulation or the great day of tribulation, the seven-year period of time that's yet to come in our future. says it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. We went into great detail as far as religious apostasy, the departing from the Christian faith and the doctrines of the Christian faith and then a belief system that says, hey, everybody can believe whatever they want whenever they want to believe it and let's lay aside the things that are in opposition to one another and let's move toward one great world religion where we are the world, we are the people, let's hold hands and sing whatever it is song that will develop for that and everybody will learn to get along and anything that opposes or causes opposition will lay those things aside and we'll just build our own little program because we don't like God's narrow way we never have never will because that's sin nature and it's an opposition to God so this apostasy that we see or this falling away is going to come first or prior to the return of Christ and it says and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction God, God references the fact that there is a man who's coming in the future, the Antichrist, which we've learned, the man of lawlessness. And this is a human being, a person. It is not a philosophy. It is not a spirit. It is not a movement. It is not an idea. He is a person. He is a man. And he is called the man of lawlessness. The whole idea of lawlessness has to do with the fact that, you know what, he will not be submissive to the laws and the standards that are set by God. He will not be submissive to the authority of God. And in fact, if anything, he will oppose and exalt himself, in verse 4, above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This man will have the audacity to have all of mankind worship him as God. He will not submit to God or the authority of God. He will be in rebellion against God. He's the man of lawlessness, which means that he will not be under any standard whatsoever. And in fact, he himself will call himself God. You will worship me. 
Now, there's nothing new about that. If you remember, in, uh, in uh, our study in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar built the idol, and the idol was a reference of himself. And Nebuchadnezzar went so far as to say, if you do not worship this idol, I will throw you in the fiery furnace. And so as we look at this, we go, wow, you know what? I mean, what kind of person would put themselves in a position to be worshipped as God? Well, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And as I look at that and consider, what does this have to do with me? Because sometimes we look at these things and go, oh, this has nothing to do with me, but it does. And I'll tell you why. Let me ask you this question. Do you place yourself under the authority of God and all that you do in your life? If God says something, do you say, Lord, I, you know... All right, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I know that you are God, and I know that I'm under your authority, and therefore, even though I don't agree and it goes against what I want to do, I will submit myself to, to your will in my life. See, some of us got this attitude about the Antichrist is, man, what kind of person would want to uh, not be under the uh, instruction or standard of God and I'd say the same type of person that we find ourselves at many times in our life when we rebel against God as well. See, the heart of man is wicked and deceitful. Sin nature has always been in opposition to God. When God says so, man says no, and we come up with another way that can accommodate what we want to do so that we don't have to submit to the authority of God in our life. Who is in control of your life? Whose will do you live to serve? Is it yourself or is it God? See, the spirit of Antichrist is one that says, you know what, I'm not going to submit to God. I'll do what I want, when I want, and that's just the way it's going to be. See, we don't like to hear that because none of us like to hear that we're rebellious at heart. We all want to hear that we're submissive to authority and that, you know, all this kind of stuff, but it's not true always, is it? So we need to recognize that. When I see a person, a lawless person or a rebel, you know, I'm sure that you, you picture it. If you're a, a student, you probably picture someone in your classroom who is a lawless one. Uh, I picture people that when I played sports that, you know what, to them rules were meant to be broken. The first picture that comes to my mind is the multicolored dude that plays for the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. And some of you uh, all, all can identify uh, the multicolored hairdo, that guy, um, that uh, decides to do what he wants, when he wants, when he wants. And to him, rules are meant to be broken, and he will never submit to the authority of anybody else in his life. And, you know, and so, to some degree, you know, our nation is built on people like that. I, you know, to some degree, we're all radicals and we're all rebels, and that's how this nation was founded, by people that were in opposition to the authority of the tyrants that were above them and said, we're not going to listen to this anymore, and under the guise of freedom and everything else, we came out, you know, we came to this country, we moved out west, we did all that. So there's a, there's a part of us that likes that. We like rugged individualists. We like people that, you know, will go and, you know, kind of pave their own way or, or blaze their own path. We like that. But the problem is there's a danger with that as well. And that is there's a point in our life where we must be submissive to the authority of God because He is God and He is in charge. So we struggle with that line that we walk, and yet this man will claim to be God. He has no respect for God because he thinks he is God. So as we consider these things, the personal application is this. Do you humbly submit to God's will or do you rise up in rebellion against Him? Or ignore him when he tells you to do that which you don't like. The Bible says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The man of lawlessness is a rebel at heart and is opposed to the authority of God, which ultimately will lead to his destruction. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages that I'll challenge you to memorize for yourselves, and that is this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, under his authority, that he may exalt you at the proper time. King Saul was warned that rebellion was as the sin of witchcraft, and obedience was to be desired over sacrifice. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The test for all of God's people is the fact that if God says something, even when we don't agree... Do we love enough that we will obey and submit to his authority in our life? C.S. Lewis made this point. He said, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. And isn't that true? Because Lucifer said, I will not submit to your authority. 
I will not humble myself before you. I want to be like you. And that is exactly the temptation that Adam entered into when he said, Surely God does not say this. And man said, You're right. I think I'll do it my way. The second thing that we look at from this passage in verse 9 is this. Uh, not only is he the lawless one because he's in rebellion against God, but look at verse 9. It says that that is the one who's coming, speaking of Antichrist or the lawless one, is coming and whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. This man will perform miracles through the power of Satan himself, counterfeit miracles that are meant to deceive, to take attention and focus off of God and the truth of his word and to lead many away from God. We went into great detail in this particular area when we talked about religious apostasy, but the point of the matter is this, that there are counterfeit ministers who preach a counterfeit gospel and will give, be given power to perform counterfeit signs and wonders. They're lying signs or lying wonders so that they will deceive people and lead them away from God. When we see miracles in our culture today, the point of this passage and that I want to share with you from an application standpoint is this. When we see so-called miracles or miracles in our culture today, we've got to ask one question and one one question only, and that is this. Who, through this miracle, gets the glory? Is it God or is it man? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed through this miracle, or is it some other message, some other philosophy, something else that leads people away from the narrow path, which is faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, then I say to you that it doesn't come from God at all, but it is a lying wonder, a lying sign, a lying miracle, and Satan deceives, him, deceives us and is a counterfeit, and he, he comes as an angel of light. And you know, when you see some of the top best-selling books that are on, on the uh, book list today that talk about people that have, quote, so-called had near-death experiences, and they no longer fear death because of this great light and this beautiful vision that they had of what life will be like after this world and into the next world. And you ask them a very simple question. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? And they come back and say, oh no, you know what? God loves all people and there's many roads that will lead to the presence of God. And you know what? And I tell them and I'll tell you to tell them or anybody like them that that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is meant to deceive and lead people away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is very simple. You will be deluded if you reject reject the truth. Look at verse 10. And with all the deception and wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the word of God. The truth is Jesus Christ. The truth, there's only one truth so as to be saved. The bottom line is this, that anyone who today would live to go through the experience of the tribulation that hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects that truth, there is no second chances as you would enter into the tribulation because you will be turned over for this reason God will send upon them. Who's them? Those who reject the truth. A deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You know, one of the things that I'm real concerned about our culture is this. The gospel is very rarely preached. It is very rarely preached, and I want to take a moment to explain to you what I mean by that, because we live in a culture today that tells people, hey, you got everything else going for you, you just have one thing missing, you just need to add Jesus Christ and stir, mix it all together, and you got the whole package. You know what? That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ very plainly is this, that God has set a standard. For any of us to enter into the presence of God, his standard is that we must be perfect. Some of us think we're not that bad. Some of us think we're okay in light of the people that we hang out or people that are around us. We think that God's going to grade on a curve, but he's not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that you have got to be perfect to enter into the presence of God. Perfect and he cannot tolerate sin and in him there is no darkness at all. The gospel says that there are none of us who are righteous, who are perfect. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has set a standard in his laws, and we go through as an example the Ten Commandments, and there's no one that has ever kept the Ten Commandments. God has never came first in your life and him alone. You have, you have worshipped idols, and you have put others before God, whether it's your career, your job, a relationship with other people. There's always been something that's come before God in your life, and that is true of mine. None of us have ever gone through life and never told a lie. We may call them little white lies. We may justify them. We may call them a whole bunch of other things, you know, and, and, but they're still lies. 
Some of us have stolen. Some of us have coveted our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's good. The point that I'm trying to make to you is this. God has set a standard, and the standard is perfection, and none of us attain it. We all have sinned and fall short of that standard. There are none righteous, no, not one of us. And if you're here today and you think that you are, then you're guilty of the sin of pride because you will not humble yourself before God, and God is opposed to pride. So here's the deal. We are all in the same boat together. We have all been condemned. Through Adam, sin entered in the world, and through sin came death. We have all been given a death sentence before God. John 3.18 says that all of us have been condemned before God, and there is no hope for any of us that we are all on the road to condemnation and the wrath of God. We are all born with a sin nature. That's why we sin, and we are all, if we died in our sins, going to be judged by God and spend eternity separated from God in a place that he's called hell. Now, none of us like to hear that because we think, ooh, that's kind of offensive. But it's true. And if it wasn't, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And if that was the end of the story, this would be a very depressing session for you. But it's not. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even while we were sinners in rebellion against God, he sent Christ to die in our place. And God is pleased with his sacrifice on the cross for our sins for those who would believe in him. And three days later, he arose from the dead, proving that he can forgive sin and that he can give us eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now the question is, who can save us from the mess that we're in? And the answer is simple. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Men and women, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even when we're sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. There's nothing good and worthy in ourselves. It is all in Him and in Him alone. If you believe in Him, if you trust in Him, if you acknowledge your sin and say, Lord, you're right, I am a sinner, and there's no way in the world I could ever get into heaven if you demand perfection, I believe that Christ died for my sins, I confess my sin, I repent from every idea and attitude that I've had, and I invite Christ to come into my life. The Bible says, for those who receive Him, to them He gave the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in His name. Why have I taken the time to be very clear on this subject? For this reason and this reason alone. Because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. For those of you who have heard that truth and continue to reject that truth, the Bible says if the church was taken out of this world at this moment in time and you are left to enter into the great tribulation, you will have no second chance to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will be turned over to a deluding influence because you have rejected the truth and you will buy into the lie. And this man who is coming will head up that whole philosophy that will lead people away from the truth of Jesus Christ to buy into the lie. God loves people and he warns us of impending judgment. And if you are here today and you have never trusted in Christ, you need to do so today because today is the day of the Lord. Today the Spirit of God is moving in your heart and there's no guarantee that if you live another day that you will ever have a chance to make that right with God. Acknowledge your sin before God. Thank Him for sending Christ and open your heart to Him. He is the Antichrist. He is the lawless one. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 because He is also, the Bible says, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you recall, we went into great detail as we went through the book of Daniel. But it's important as we look at this to understand that Daniel has much to say of this coming world leader, the Antichrist, the lawless one, the son of destruction. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see more description given to us of this coming world leader, world ruler. The reason that I wanted to do a series on future events is because so much of what we learned in the book of Daniel ties into future times. And I was hoping that what we could do is build upon that which we've already learned as a base and then take it forward from there. So in Daniel chapter 7, we see a description of this coming world leader and he is described as the little horn. Look at verse 7. We read this. It says, Now after this I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast says dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large iron teeth and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
And it was different from the, all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, if you recall, as we were going through this study, the beasts represent kingdoms of the world, and they were very clearly laid out for us as we looked at what was going on uh, prior to this. This fourth beast would be the kingdom of Rome, and it says that, and it had ten horns. It says, while I was contemplating the, the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by its roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So as we take a look at this, there's a kingdom that will come. This kingdom would be the Roman Empire, as we learned in that particular study. There would be a number of horns, and the horn always represented a ruler or a king. In this particular case, there would be ten, and among these ten leaders that would arise from the Roman Empire, there would be one, and he is identified for us as the little horn. So this man would come from seemingly nowhere. He's insignificant. He's small. He would come and he would rise among these ten, uh, these ten kings or leaders, and uh, he would end up uprooting three of them, and all of a sudden he would be a major player on the world scene. We live in a day as we anticipate future events where there will be ten, na ten uh, nations or kingdoms that will arise from the European community and the European community could represent also the United States because our roots are in Europe. It could represent Australia. The roots are in Europe. It could represent Canada. The roots are in Europe. It could represent a whole number of different countries. But the bottom line is this, and the Bible is very clear. There will be ten nations that will arise and form some type of an alliance. There will be ten leaders of these nations, and one of those leaders will be the coming antichrist, the lawless one, the little horn of Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Notice what we also find out is here is a man whose mouth utters great boasts. So we know he is a man of arrogance and pride. We've already learned from 2 Thessalonians that he would be a man who would want to be worshipped as God, take his place in the temple as God. So the guy is out of control. He is arrogant. He is prideful. Look at verses 19 through 25 and it continues giving us a description of who this man is. It says, Then I desire to know the truth and the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It says, The meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. So somehow or another, this man will arise from among these ten nations. He will take over three of them. He will become a major player, and his appearance is larger than the others, meaning that he's simply taller than the rest of them. So as people are looking, they're going, hey, it's pretty obvious this guy's taller than those guys. It says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So he's going to take a position in life that says, you know what? Anyone who does not worship me, I will wage war against them. And it'll be fish or cut bait time with those who are alive on the face of the earth at that time. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship God? Or are you going to worship man? You know what's interesting is that spirit of Antichrist is found in a lot of different settings, isn't it? I used to have a boss that was like that. I don't know if you do or if you've ever ran into someone like that, but I knew guys through uh, the NFL or through baseball or whatever that, you know, the coaches or managers, they thought they were God, and if you didn't worship them, they would make sure that they would make life, life really tough for you. And it's kind of like you need to make a decision. Are you going to worship God or are you going to worship me? We've always been put in that position. And he said, hey, you know what? If you don't worship me and do what I tell you to do and compromise your belief in God, then you know what? There's probably no room on this roster for you and you may be out the door. And all of a sudden, guys are put in a position of, wait, who's my God? Oh, what idol am I going to put before God? Am I going to trust God and believe God? I, I, you know, I, we, we all wrestle with that. Some of you are at, at places of employment right now and you've compromised your faith because you want to get along with the boss, because you think the boss is controlling the purse strings, because you think and believe that, you know what, if you suck up or kiss up to the boss, that he's the one that will promote you. You think that he's the one that's in control of whether you get raises or don't get raises. And so you lay your faith aside for the week and then you come back to church on Sunday or to your Bible study during the week and say, boy, I want to learn more about God and becoming you know, more Christ-like in my actions and my attitudes and my behavior. Behavior, and then you go to work and you lay it all aside because you're afraid. Can I just share something with you? God is in control. And he always leads the way and we follow him. I'll tell you that what I've learned about me is this. I never want to go anywhere where God hasn't already paved the way and is out in front before me. And if I've got to compromise my faith to get somewhere that I think I want to go and God's hand's not in it and he's not waiting there for me, it will be an absolute disaster. Now, I'm not saying be rude, and I'm not saying be ignorant, and I'm not saying be rebellious at your place of employment, but what I am saying is this. Be excellent at what you do, and live a life that's pleasing to God, 
And if that's not where you're going to be, God will put you somewhere else where you can be light and darkness. But the moment you sell out, you have nothing to offer to the people that you work with because they don't really understand what you're all about and who God is. The only way we can make a difference in the world that we live in is by taking a stand and doing what's right before God. And if we love God, we'll obey His commandments and we won't sell out for anybody because what do they have to offer you that God can't give you a hundred times? And if it's not in this life, it'll be in the next. So you know what? We can't lose. So what are we selling out for? It's amazing to me how many of us do that. See, an Antichrist will prey upon that. Hey, you don't worship me, then I'll kill you. Wow. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. As we go through this, we see it. And we need to recognize and understand as we go through all of this is that he will speak out in verse 25 against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in time and in the law. They will be given into his hand for a time, which is one year. Times is two years. And a half a time is a half a year. So for three and a half years, he will just run rampant upon the face of the earth. We also learn, if you get your Bibles, turn to uh, Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse 23 through 25, that he is a king of fierce countenance. Daniel 8, 23 through 25. Now, some have said, though, this particular leader that's coming is the Antichrist. And I want to tell you right now that in this context, the man that's being described is not the Antichrist. We learn from our study of the book of Daniel, he would become Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a leader that would come. He would be a type of the Antichrist. And notice what he did. In the latter period of their rule, speaking of the Greeks, we know that this man came from the four Greek generals that succeeded Alexander the Great. So we know that he's not the Antichrist because in, in Daniel chapter 9, the the Antichrist comes from the people that would destroy Jerusalem and the temple, who we now know from history are the Romans. So this man is not the Antichrist, but he is a type or a picture of Antichrist. It says, in the latter rule, period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. If you want to dig into all that, you can grab the tape on that, on that particular chapter in Daniel chapter 8 because we spent our whole time developing this idea, and that is this. There was a man in human history. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a picture of the coming world leader, the Antichrist, and for the nation of Israel, specifically for Jewish people, this means a lot because they know what they endured under his vicious rule, and God is warning them if they do not repent and turn it to Jesus Christ that they will experience something similar to that, and in fact, even greater than what they they had experienced in their own history as a nation and it was a terrible time of mass destruction and they were set up by this particular man he came in peace saying hey you know i'm coming in peace you can trust me and ultimately they were murdered by him he's also the coming prince the antichrist daniel chapter 9 verses 26 and 27 as you look at that it says that after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And here we go. And the people of the prince who is to come, we know that there were the Romans under Titus in 70 AD, the people of the prince who is to come, he is the coming prince, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations, and determined. Now it says, and he, who? The coming world leader, the people of the prince, the prince that was to come, the Antichrist, the lawless one, the little horn, a king of fierce uh, countenance, says he will make a firm covenant, notice, with the many for one week. He will make a firm covenant with the nation of Israel. Antichrist will be revealed. This man will make a covenant with the nation of Israel, promising them security and peace and safety. He will do it for one week or seven-year period of time, which is the period that we've already studied was the great is the great tribulation. It says, but in the middle of the week, there's the time and times and a half a time or three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What's he talking about here? Talking about. For seven years, this man will promise Israel safety and security at some point in the future. At the period of time, three and a half years into the program, he will say, you know what, I was just kidding. 
He will stand up in the temple of Israel and he will stop all the sacrifices that are being made to God and he will proclaim himself to be God. Jesus warned that it's the abomination of the desolation, Matthew chapter 24, that this man will step up and claim to be God and he will demand that people worship him. At that period, point in time, everyone on the face of the earth that's here will recognize the fact that, you know what, he is the Antichrist, but those who are deceived will not even see that. And they will buy into it. Why? Because they're looking for a savior. They're looking for someone to put their hope and their trust and their faith in. And, and Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 40, we see the same thing. It says that he is the willful, willful king. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. One thing that I want you to notice as we go through this is that God is still in control. That which is decreed shall be done. Antichrist will be used by God for God's purposes to punish the world of unbelievers and to purge the nation of Israel. And God is still in control. I think sometimes we forget that. And we need to be reminded of that. No matter how difficult things are in our life, God is still in control. There's a purpose behind it. There's a reason for it. I was talking to a friend last night, and we were talking about the difficult things that sometimes we go through in our life. But the real issue came down to this. The most important thing for any human being is to come into a right relationship with the God who has created them. There's nothing more important than that. And no matter what God has to do to get our attention, that's a good thing. If our marriage falls apart, but because of that we humble ourselves before God and we turn to Him and we trust in Jesus Christ, then that's a good thing. Is it painful? Absolutely. But sometimes some of us need to be knocked down so low that we have nowhere to look but up and cry out to God. If we lose all of our finances or we're laid off on our job or through some acquisition or merger and all the stuff that's going on in our economic climate today and you spent 20 or 30 years there and how unfair it is and how wrong it is that now you're just being set aside because of the changes that are made. And if that's what God uses to break you, to humble you, to turn you to himself so that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is not a bad thing. See, we need to understand and recognize that God loves people and he will do everything that he can to get our attention so that we come into a right relationship with God because there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a narrow way and you know what? Sometimes God's got to do whatever he has to do in order to get our attention. Some of us look around and we go, man, if, if I was going through that, you'd think that would break me or humble me to where I turn, into, turn to God. And you know what? Some of us are really prideful, stubborn, insolent, arrogant people. We think we're okay. And the fact that I even say that, some of you are even angry that I'm saying that, like how can you call me arrogant, prideful, and, and stubborn, and insolent, and all that? And you know what? I don't even know you. So if you think I'm talking about you, then maybe it's God trying to get your attention. Humble yourself, because God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, this man is an insolent, arrogant, prideful, boastful person who says, I'm not doing it God's way, I'm doing it man's way, and I'm going to convince everybody else to do it my way. And his way is wrong, and it leads to destruction. The most fascinating description that we see of this coming world leader, the Antichrist, the lawless one, the little horn, the king of fierce countenance, the coming prince, a, uh, the willful king, is the, the uh, description that's used in the book of Revelation, and his man is known as the beast, which should come as no surprise about right now. The beast. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13. Notice the description that God gives us of the beast. In verse 1 of chapter 13, we read, And he stood, the beast, on the sand of the seashore. And I saw, I'm sorry, and he stood on the sand of the seashore and saw a beast coming out of the sea. The sea represents the Gentile world, so we know that this man is not Jewish, but he's a Gentile, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blasphemous names. As we look at the ten horns, we've already talked about the ten kingdoms that would come. There were seven heads, or the seven world empires up to this particular point, and on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blasphemous names says, and the beast which I saw, remember in the book of Daniel, the leopard, says, and there's a bear, 
and there was a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. His authority is, is, comes from the pit of hell himself. The dragon is none other than the devil, the adversary of our souls, the roaring lion seeking those to devour, that actually it's the devil who is behind this particular man, and he influences him. That's why he has the power to do lying wonders. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed at the resurrection of this dead empire, which was the Roman Empire. And I'll guarantee you, as you look at Europe and you look at everything that's gone on in the last 2,000 years, people are amazed and when, when the Bible says that one day this European economic community or European states or United States of Europe or whatever it is it's going to be called, people will be amazed all over the world that this, this community has resurrected itself to become the most powerful economic block of nations in the world. Because for the last 2,000 years... People have thought the Roman Empire was dead and it will be resurrected and it will be powerful. Who all the members are, I don't have a clue. In the early century, they thought it was the United Nations. Oh, that must be it, and that wasn't it. They thought it was, uh, or, or the League of Nations. That wasn't it. It wasn't the United Nations. You know, people have all speculated, and every time that, that man speculates on what it is, everything changes overnight, and it changes everybody's uh, opinion of it. You know, right now, when you look at the war that's going on and all the problems in that particular region, you know what? Tomorrow, everything can change in a minute, and, it, and, and all of our uh, so-called educated guesses are thrown out the window. One thing that we know is this, is that there will be ten nations or ten kingdoms that will arise they will form an economic block and the world will be amazed at how powerful they are economically. Those who are in the financial community have already recognized that and know that because they're looking at investments in the European community saying, hey, you know what? Uh, we, we see something here and it looks like we need to be more global-minded in our investment structure and a little more diversified because of all the changes that are taking, a place, taking place in the world. So we're, we're looking at the Bible coming to fruition. That's why I say read your Bible on one end and the newspaper on the other, and it's exciting to see everything that's going on, just like God said it would. It says, and they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So indirectly, as man worships the Antichrist, they are worshiping a Satan, which is what he wanted from the very beginning. He wanted to be worshipped like God. It says, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth, speaking, here we go, arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months, or a time, times and a half, three and a half years, 1260 days. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name, and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. This man will step up, and he will, he will condemn and criticize all who believe in God, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in fact, it was given to him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him and all who dwell on the earth will worship him there he goes with the earth dwellers again versus those whose citizenships in heaven everyone whose name has not been found written from the foundation of the world in the book of life the lamb who has been slayed make no doubt about it that those who receive Jesus Christ during the great tribulation will be murdered under the dictatorship of this particular man they will be murdered they will be tortured they will be punished because they decided not to worship the beast but to worship the God of all creation and as we look at this, the last thing I want to point out is this. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, And he causes all, the great and the small, the rich and the poor, the free men and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. There's the mark of the beast. It says, And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. There will be a time that comes in the, in the future where those who are alive during the great tribulation that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear it for the first time will have a very real dilemma to deal with, and that is this. If they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe in him, they will not receive the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast indicates that you will be lost for all of eternity. So the sellout is this. You have a choice. If you want to believe in Jesus Christ, then you will not be able to make a living you will not be able to buy any food. You will not be able to have a place to stay. You will not be able to have water to drink. And you will die a suffering, terrible death because you chose to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the reality of that is this. Some of us today have no persecution whatsoever in our choice or our decision to trust in Jesus Christ. And we still are arrogant and prideful enough not to do it. The point is this. When you enter into a time of persecution and the choice is believe in Jesus Christ and you die or reject him and we will offer you whatever it is we have to offer you, 
it's going to be pretty evident that most people are going to choose to reject Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. We don't even know what persecution's like. And we still turn our back on the gracious gift that God has to offer in Jesus Christ. How much more so will it be during a time of persecution like the world has never seen? My point is very simple, and I hope it's not being missed, and that's this. If you don't know Jesus Christ and have never committed your heart to him, then today is the day you better do it. Because there's no guaranteeing that you will have any strength to do so. And in fact, during the Great Tribulation, the restrainer of the Holy Spirit will be removed with the church. And there will be no opportunity other than those who had never heard the gospel and those who God's, God will touch, it, 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 that they can respond to that gift. So I'm looking at all this. I'm trying to think, okay, now think about this for a second. Follow this logic and, and, and see if it makes sense to you. Here I am, I'm studying, I'm putting this all together, and I'm thinking, what's this have to do with me? We just went through a session that talked about the fact that the church will not go through, according to what I believe the Bible teaches, the church will not go through the Great Tribulation. If that's the case, we don't have to worry about this guy. Because we won't be here. So then I'm thinking, well, God, then who cares? You know, being the selfish kind of guy that I am. Then what's the difference? And it's like, wait a minute, why is this always just about you? Then we have one of our long talks again. And that's, what are you trying to say? Well, here's the point. The Antichrist personifies all that is evil and wicked within the sin-stained heart of man. Now, if you think about it, he's at the end of a long list of vicious dictators or kings who have tried to be king of the world. From Antiochus Epiphanes, the pharaohs before that, to modern-day Stalins and Hitlers and Amins and Duvaliers and Khomeinis and Husseins and Milosevic's and men in whom men and women have put their faith, trust, and hope only to be deceived and used and destroyed by their evil intents. There is only one who is God and only one who is perfect, and in Him there is no darkness at all, and that's God Himself. God's plan for mankind is that we would recognize that we are sinners, that we would acknowledge that sin before God, realize that in and of ourselves we are hopeless, and that we would turn to Jesus Christ as the only hope and in Him alone, because He is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. For those who have never trusted in Christ, acknowledge your sin, recognize your need of forgiveness, believe in Jesus Christ, receive Him today. And the Bible says that you will be called children of God to those who believe in His name. And you will be spared from having to deal with evil and wicked men like this man who is yet to come. Now for those of us who know Christ as Savior and Lord, our understanding of future events should give us a sense of urgency to warn as many folks as will listen as to the coming judgment of God and their need for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Why has God chosen to tell us about this man called the Antichrist, the lawless one, the little horn, a king of fierce countenance, the coming prince, the willful king, and the beast? He's told us so that we can warn those whom we love and whom God brings across our path that the way of salvation is indeed narrow and there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. See, a knowledge of the future should cause us to redeem the time that God has given each of us wisely. To be steadfast, not sidetracked by all the things that come up in life, but to be steadfast, to be focused, to be intent, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and the Bible says that we are to gain in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.